Welcome to Imperfect Leaders. We invite the country's most admired leaders in business, sports, and education, and ask them to share practical lessons and advice with our listeners. After all, there's no such thing as a perfect leader. The only question is, are you willing to listen and learn from the very best? If you want to share comments or questions or recommend future guests, visit www.imperfectleaders.com. Until then, sit back and enjoy today's show. True is one of the hottest, fastest growing talent management firms in the entire country. True works hand in hand with iconic companies that we all know and love. And today's guest, Todd Zangrillo, has been at True from the very beginning. He helped build from scratch True's executive search capability and global consumer practice. During our completely candid conversation, Todd shares with us his incredible personal journey of self-awareness, near-death experience, and how he discovered his true north. It's no wonder why the world's most iconic brands trust Todd to find their next inspirational leader, because he's one himself. So sit back and enjoy today's conversation with my friend, Todd Zangrillo. Thanks, Jeff. And I'm so excited to be here. And I love what you're doing on your podcast. And you're right. I'm one of the luckiest guys in the world. I get to work with companies like Walmart, Spotify, Pinterest, Coinbase, Fanatics. And what I do is help these companies find their CEOs, board members, and key transformational talent, something that's totally keeps me on my toes every day. All right. That's amazing, Todd. So let's talk a little bit about culture fit. So you do this worldwide search for the best talent. How can you tell if the short list of people that you find are the right culture fit for these amazing clients that you just mentioned? So one of the many reasons I love what I do is because you get to know people in such an accelerated path, such an accelerated timeline, talking about the most personal things you could ever imagine that even with your friends could take years, your family, your risk tolerance, how much money you make, if you're ready to leave the company, your vulnerabilities, you know, what your what your head and heart desires. Um, and so I say all those because during the process, if you're really paying attention and I'm constantly watching the reactions of that CEO and that candidate, their character comes out, their fears come out, that when they pull back, you can see it. When they're really cocky, you can see it. When they say that they're this person and you start to see different set of behaviors in them and you balance that with all of the back channel referencing. And then that's where the truth around culture is. So it's really hard then for the candidates to kind of game the system and basically just tell you what they think you want to hear. Because if I'm hearing you correctly, you have multiple data points. You're interviewing them several times. You're doing referencing on them. You have got this you know, personal customized assessment called synthesis, a true that you guys use. So you have multiple data points. Yeah. I mean, like the, the, the most authentic leaders go out of the way to not gamify the situation and they're earnest and authentic. And they move through the process with sharing exactly what's most important to them. And they actually gain lots of momentum in the process. So you can feel that um, the ones that gamify may make it through the first round really well, but you know, Typically, we're really fortunate. We have some of the most amazing customers in the world. They're incredible interviewers. They've done this a million times. The board members are. So the ones that gamify usually get pushed out of the process faster than anybody else. 
do they sometimes sneak through the cracks? And what happens if they do? Do you have to start the search all over again? I mean, we have year guarantees on the work that we do, and so do most of the best firms. So uh, one is we care about what we do. We do this for a reason, um, not just for the situation. And so it happens time to time. And some companies, you know, with this this podcast is about imperfect leaders. We have to make the decisions on imperfect people. Mm-hmm. Our hiring managers are imperfect leaders. So it's really a calculated decision. I just got off a call with this amazing unicorn client who wants to hire like the top unicorn CMO in the world. This client has, you know, some particular things about them. So does the candidate, but the board decided with the founder, like this is a very qualified risk. We know what the weaknesses of this person are and the triggers of them. We actually know how that will affect our CEO. We're going to have an honest conversation about that and go take a shared risk together. So this podcast, as you mentioned, is called Imperfect Leaders. And in my view, there is no such thing as a perfect leader. But for all the listeners out there, is it important for them to actually talk about some of their flaws during the interview process with you or with the with your client? I mean, it's it's my own personal answer, but one of the strongest attributes of leadership is self-awareness. So do we want people running around like plastering their flaws all over the wall right out of the gate? Probably not. But the people that are really self-aware could talk about their strengths and weaknesses, where they came from, what they're doing to overcome them, uh, are the leaders that, in my opinion, get these great CEO jobs. And let's talk about you for a second, Todd. You know, what makes you qualified to help the world's best organizations, you know, Jed and Fanatics and all these other companies that you deal with daily? Why are you qualified to help them select their CEOs and some of their top executives? Maybe, maybe I would say that I've been I'm blessed. Um, the combination of me starting off in management consulting in this organizational uh, development group in San Francisco with this small consulting firm, not a big name firm, when we had clients like Google and Yahoo, when we literally didn't even know what that meant. So I got I, I got to start in the early days of tech, starting to see the wave coming. Um, uh, a family member, uh, my brother, and and two other founders came to me to start an e-commerce company back in the mid '90s called Intraworld. Five years later, we had an IPO that peaked at over three billion dollar valuation. So I got to live the ride. I remember I think it was like the second month. I don't know. We had twenty employees. We were trying to. Sh- put together some funding. I'm running payroll on my credit card. I mean, I can't sleep at night. I'm so stressed out. Uh, so I got to live through one of those. Uh, on the back of that, I co-raised um, a carve-out fund in the retail industry to help some of the top bricks and mortar brands become sort of e-com- uh, become great in e-commerce. So we launched the first ever e- e-businesses for Ulta.com and Dick's Sporting Goods. Uh, I did some advisory work after that. And the combination of those things, I had this coach that I brought everywhere with me. And he finally came to me and said, I I think I figured it out for you. I said, what did you figure out? He said, I think you should be a headhunter. I said, how'd you feel when he said that? I I said, are you making fun of me? Or is that like, like, because I I think over the last 20 years, the best firms are the best people in search people realize how hard that job is and that we we have a really meaningful seat at the table. But at the time, 
I, you know, search hadn't really gotten to that place. So I was thinking, am I just not as good as I, am I missing something in my general management background? Have I not achieved things? And he said, no, you are, you're the most wildly curious person. You've raised money. You've managed a P&L. You've done international work. You've sat on the board seat. You succeeded. You failed. Um, and there is an equation that you see that I, and he specialized in organizational management. There's an equation that you see in an empathy, empathy that you have that I just haven't seen in a really long time. And by the way, Ted, if you do this versus you being a great number two or, you know, doing multiple companies, I think it's your superpower and you could be incredibly happy and you could potentially be great. So how then did you get into search? So on the back of that conversation, him and I spent a year and a half interviewing all the top CEOs and investors at the time in the country, not in the world, asking them, why do you love some search firms, hate other search firms? Why are you getting the results you want? Why is executive turnover between nine and 18 months with these leaders we're spending all this money on? And we reverse engineered and literally service marked, not trademarked, a methodology to actually do search. And it was called alignment-driven serves. So while I won't bore you with that, it was literally, it had a brand, it had a workflow, it captured all the data that went into the search. The net, the net of that had two prongs to it. One was when I saw people not being organized and making higher decisions and they were unsuccessful on a very spiritual level for me, Jeff, it bothered me. They took jobs where the pro they said the product was great. It didn't work. They said the funding was there. It wasn't work. They started bringing that stuff home to their families. Mm -hmm. They started, that stuff started to affect them personally. And um, at the time, everybody was lump, lunging towards the next cool startup. And people had these perfect careers all of a sudden were coming to me saying, I don't know what to do anymore. Mm -hmm. And so the original thesis for that business was I wanted to help people create personal and professional wealth. And that meant like you could be successful, you would flourish, you would be a better husband or mother or family member or partner. Um, you would make money, the company would be successful, the partnership with that hiring manager would make you guys better. And we proved over three years that our placements were staying in jobs nine to 18 months longer than the other firms. And so then how did you end up at this firm called True? It's kind of a, it's a great story, maybe a little funny and maybe a little embarrassing. Um, and at the time, there was this other firm that everybody kept saying was so hot. They were hungry. They were good guys. They delivered great work. And it was called Iron Hill Partners. And so um, at that time, uh, I felt like we were constantly competing. I want, I, I didn't have senior partners yet. So I kind of felt like I wanted to go investigate, like, could there be a great merger of the two companies? Because all the things I wanted to be, I kept hearing about them. Um, so the important part of the story is I had not found my confidence yet. <laughs> I had not found what I call my voice. And so when I approached the founders and had lunch with them, <laughs> supposedly when I left, so my attempt was to share with them my vision, try to get them excited about potentially merging the companies or buying them. When I left the meeting, one of the founders, who's our founder today, Brad, I think would say, that guy's nuts, but I but I think he's ballsy and I really like him. And he wants to build the next modern search firm too, and maybe in a different way than us, but there's something there. What I didn't realize is the other co-founder of True, Joe Riggione, who today is one of my best friends, 
actually didn't feel that way about me. Really? Um, Why not? So he said, why don't you go have lunch with Joe? And I was like, awesome. I was so pumped. And he was like, just, you know, before you go to lunch, Joe doesn't like you. (laughs) And that's a a nice pep talk, by the way. And uh, he's big, by the way, Brian and Joe are my ultimate mentors of my life. But the funny thing about that was, although I know I'm wildly imperfect, I don't get that a lot. And so I went to lunch with Joe. He's one of the best communicators you could ever imagine. He sees things no one else sees. And we were able to talk about my story and why when I showed up with him that um, I wasn't my best self. And it was really fueled by a bunch of my insecurities. And those two chose to like, to get over that and to embrace me and to pull me into this firm, which I consider myself, you know, part of really that that founding team. And, you know, 10 years later, we've gone on to do some great things together. Why do you think that um, Joe felt that way about you at first? And tell me a little bit more about this lunch and how he got past, you know, not liking you to actually wanting to give you a chance. <laughs> By the way, we should, and Joe's hysterical. We should bring him into the podcast to answer this because they'll probably, I, my version may not be the same as I think that Joe believes in in great humans and people that, again, back to that self-awareness piece. Um, so one is I um, I think a lot of leaders uh, don't realize that their early beginnings of their childhood through adolescence, through schooling and early careers massively shapes who they are. I had a brother uh, growing up that was a super genius. So I spent my entire you know, up through my 30s, thinking that, like, I wasn't smart, I could only be a number two. Um, This is a guy who didn't study for his GMATs and scores in the top 0.5%, like in the country, he's just that smart. Mm -hmm. And so I I had, I just had a real stigma around myself and around what I was capable for. And a, a lot of deep insecurities around my own level of intelligence and to do that. And, um, so when I started my firm, and, and I had a really strong point of view around, um, the vision for that, I was coming off, I was coming off a little aggressive in doing that. I was probably, Joe could probably see through the aggression and see my, probably my insecurity and see that I just wasn't comfortable with myself yet. And I thought there was things there that they liked. And I think Joe felt like there's some, there's some good stuff there. Todd's self-awareness hopefully was um, really authentic and that um, that we could maybe do great things together. It's been a long journey. Those guys have been the best bosses and friends I've had in my career um, and have been extraordinarily honest with me over the years and helped me find the best version of myself. And it's you said Joe is a great human being, and it sounds like he also has a, a very good eye for great talent and for great human beings. And so it, it sounds as if during that lunch, he got to know you at a deeper level as he peeled back the onion. Uh, you talked about a few different human qualities that are the same for all great leaders, self-awareness, empathy, vulnerability. Why is self-awareness so important in general for leadership? Well, I think it's always been really important, but look at the world today. We're ma- great leaders are managing through covid Entire workforces working from home, diversity being tip of the spear, which it should be. We're managing multiple generational labor forces. We're looking at war. We're potentially in recession. 
So you imagine what it was like to be a great leader before. Imagine showing up to work and having that as part of your agenda that otherwise was not part of your agenda before. So the old, you know, beat the table, do what I say, top-down management, it just doesn't work mostly with the new generational talent bases that we have. And if you're not self-aware, and I think COVID, you know, I hate to say this, Jeff, but but I wouldn't call it a blessing for sure. It's a terrible tragedy. I lost my father to it. Um, but man, peop- it really helped the helped the majority of people redefine their North Star in their life. Um, and as a result of that, people's self-awareness has really risen, whether it's health and wellness again, or diversity or this multi-generational workforce we're doing. And in order to be successful and build great cultures, everybody knows great cultures ultimately win. Um, in order to do that, your ability to be a great leader with all those new um, facets to it is just become incredibly important. And if you don't can't start with self-awareness, you're going to miss out on all those pieces we just talked about. And, and similarly, vulnerability, um, do, you know, the days of being this omniscient, omnipotent leader that calls all the shots and knows everything are long gone because the world is just way too complex these days. So is vulnerability these days, you know, a sign of weakness or a sign of power? I think it's a balance uh, for that. I mean, I, I think I, I think it's pretty clear. Like, I do not have the perfect career trajectory or story. And I'm so incredibly grateful that I landed in something that I love and I had people to help me do that. But uh, vulnerability is, is the thing that got me to where I am today. I lead through vulnerability with my teams at work. I feel like I have much deeper relationships with them. I build trust through that. Um, we solve problems through that. If you do great work and you're vulnerable with your client, you actually can move the needle with your client even more. Um, I don't think that the, yeah, the entire conversation should be about your vulnerability, but you got to pick your spots. Yeah. And I want to understand from two sides, one, how you lead your team from a vulnerable self-aware perspective, but two, how you identify leaders for your clients that have that right mix of vulnerability, empathy, and self-awareness. But what are some of the ways in which, you know, you actually are vulnerable and share your flaws or your imperfections with your team? And how does that help you create a more authentic connection with them? I think, you know, we had an all hands meeting for our consumer team. My partner, Shella and Abe and I run yesterday and, you know, we walked through all of the metrics of where the business was. We walked through what the hurdles were. We tapped into a bunch of questions from them around their own vulnerabilities of facing the headwinds in the market, not being as busy as we have been in the past because we, you know, I think the firm globally grew 137% last year on a global basis and like 400 to 900 people. Um, So uh, we make time and create opportunities for them to share the things that are going on in their lives. Um, And we have this, sounds really simple, but we have this very prescriptive coaching tree around matching people that understand each other so that they can they can be in safe space for conversations to help people with that vulnerability and help develop in their careers. So this show again is called Imperfect Leaders. What have some of what are some of your flaws and imperfections and developmental needs? Uh, you got another three hours for that? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a couple. I remember you I know I'm I'm just teasing. Um as a result of um my complex of feeling like I could only be a number two um, growing up in my family with my brother being the super genius. 
I just really had to work on my people pleasing skills mm -hmm. uh, was one. And, you know, to be a great leader, you have to make really hard decisions. And that's been a long journey. Yeah. I mean, for me, um, you know, my father's family was off the boat from Italy and my mom had a secretarial degree. Uh, we had a nice life, but, you know, we, we, all I knew, all I was taught by my dad was how to work six and a half days a week. And that um, it didn't take smarts. It took great work and it took connecting with your customers. He actually started uh, with his family, this, this little retail store, Darien, Connecticut, Darien's Pork Shop, that it became wildly successful. And during the course of that, I just learned how to work hard. And then I started to see the comparison set in life around who gets into what school, what people get in grades. And my brother just, you know, was a straight A student across the board while he partied like crazy, which I did. And I didn't understand how he did both. And it, and it's, I, I just started to, it started to really get to me. And I felt like I couldn't reach that potential. And I felt, I felt inferior. Mm -hmm. And so for a really long time, I became like a social butterfly and a people pleaser in order to build back some of what I thought was trust and credibility and, and relationships. I didn't realize that it became a superpower of right over time and, and doing it in an authentic way, but it was a long, it was a long uphill journey. How did it become a superpower? So are you implying that you, you sometimes share this story with your team uh, and or with your clients and that somehow becomes a superpower because they trust you more because you're self-aware and you're honest? Or you tell me. I mean, if we go really far back, and for some of the some of the listeners, they may relate to this and some may not, but like I had some trauma in my childhood in my family. And then I had the combination of some of that trauma and trying to make sure I was always in the safe environment. So my antenna for like what was safe and who was a good person, it became like a superpower of mine. And then I had the combination of that thing with my brother of the inferior complex. And so for me, reading people was my way to be successful in life. Mm. And I didn't realize that um, that I was constantly honing that to get to a place now where reading a room, someone's telling me the truth, finding someone's vulnerability, getting them to open up um, was, the, was one of the keys to being really great at search and helping great leaders connect. Do you think that someone that's great at search needs to go through this process of self-awareness and self-discovery and really understanding you know, their own crucible moments and as you said earlier, their true north to actually be effective at their job because it then becomes your superpower so that you can leverage that self-awareness and kind of turn it into empathy and understand what's making other people tick, but more importantly, get them to share that with you it's a really interesting question. I have to really think about it. My gut says that certainly people do not need to be as vulnerable as me. And, and by the way, part of my, my career journey has been <laughs> managing around uh, managing around that that doesn't have to be the tip of the spear for my personality. With that said, in our firm, we celebrate all different types of leaders. There's people that are great at research, just executing, people that are more commercial, people that have these super gifts with talents and managing tough CEOs. So while I believe everyone should have some level of self-awareness, which makes them a better human and family member and friend, 
it isn't a must have. With that said, their ability to connect with humans in this, people forget, and you know, they think it's executive search. You mentioned a big CEO thinking it's great. These are human beings, but like you're helping them make decisions where they spend 75% of the time in their life. Mm-hmm. So making matches really matters to them. So if you have no level of self-awareness, you're not probably getting to the really deep issues with your candidate or your client and be able to open up the conversations that I think are the paths to success. That's a great answer. Um, and in, in my opinion, resilience is also another really important leadership quality. And I think that's often formed during what I would call a crucible experience. Uh, and that is something that really tests you know, your mettle. Can you describe a crucible moment from your life that helped shape your overall leadership style? Back to the story of when I went to see Brad at, you know, the founder of Shrew and Joe, um, right, right before that, I was at eBay in this huge job that I barely knew what I was doing. I had a near-death experience with oh, the health issue. I acquired this really rare um, immune disease called hemolytic anemia. Uh, Say that again. It's uh, hemolytic anemia, like no one can even pronounce it. It's so rare that 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 very few doctors knew what it was. Basically, most men have a red red cell blood count of about 16. And when I was checked into the hospital, uh, my blood cell count was down to 3.2, which meant I had no red blood cells in my body. I had no oxygen in my body. And I had 12 doctors around me as each one of my organs were failing at the mm-hmm. same time. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't want to get into the details of that story. Um, and I certainly don't think people need near-death experiences to change. But let me tell you how small the world got when I was battling through sitting in cancer rooms, getting blood transfusions, taking 100 milligrams of steroids a day. I mean, it was hell. And I just it was a moment in time to really self-reflect on, uh, on myself and what mattered to me, what my North Star was. Um, and that was a big changing moment. And I think Having been through that experience right before I reacquainted myself with Brad and Joe, and I shared that story with Joe, I think he felt like this is a guy who could really change and that he had all the right intentions and that um, there was a lot of good there. Could you tell me a little bit about what the North Star was? I mean, as you were sitting in those blood transfusion rooms, what was the light that went off in terms of your North Star? What did matter to you? I think I... A few things. Um, one was my wife, who's the superhuman in my life and my best friend in the world. Like I taught me how to trust someone again. Uh, so I learned trust. Um, and I think the other one was um, this people pleasing created this ability. And I and uh, people make fun of me because I took a lot of people. I love them. The, the truth is, I actually really do. <laughs> but the truth is, I I needed to um reprioritize the people in my life that I kept really close that mattered to me that fed me with honesty positive energy spiritual enrichment guidance love and trust and reciprocity and in the path of doing those things it spilled over into work so you have all of these great people together at true with this amazing culture and all of these tools for continuous improvement what are you guys trying to achieve? What's that strategy of true look like over the next three to five years? There are you know, five or six what we call uh, bold bracket um, Shrek executive search firms that have been around for 50 years. 
that are let's say four or five hundred million in revenue in public. And when large. you say Shrek, that's an acronym for Spanish yeah, Pasteur yeah. Hydric. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But believe it or not, you beyond that, you used to jump off a cliff and you'd literally get down just a few firms that made it to a couple hundred million. And beyond that, it's a bunch of small boutiques. So what people didn't realize was the executive search market was so small that A, we didn't build products and services that were meaningful because the market was so, the addressable market was so small. B, people in search for being so successful, there was no reason to change the rules of the game, although we think the incentives were completely misaligned with customers. Another point was no one had really been able to toggle moving up and down asset classes while also servicing multiple industries and being functional experts. And so while there are a number of great firms out there, no one had strung all that together, but the cherry on top was, although there's so many great other search partners that are better than me and that I have tons of respect for, they're not running around saying, I love my firm. Mm -hmm. So most importantly, we wanted to solve for that and build a culture where people loved being at our firm and that were being wildly successful and, and carrying over into their personal and professional lives. And so as a result of that, during the course of True over the last 10 years, we've built some of the leading products and services in the world in our platform. We've launched, as- so we launched Thrive TRM, the first ever sort of CRM talent management platform for the executive search industries. I think 23% of our clients are our competitors. The next third are private equity and venture firms trying to manage their talent networks. And then we have clients like Google and Fanatics and Spotify, where their global leadership teams are using this to manage their talent and hiring needs. Um, Isn't that a little counterintuitive that you actually created something that helps you, you know, these guys be your competitors? Uh, it's exactly why I love True. I thought the same thing. And Joe Brad said, if you don't have this platform, you're not a modern firm. You can't compete in the world. Let's take advantage of the original thesis and build great products and services for our industry. And as a result of that, guess who, you know we use that product. And guess who's you know the greatest product uh, developer of that product? And we use it as a secret weapon in the firm. And we just thought, let's solve the bigger piece. Let's solve the bigger layer. So you guys aren't afraid of a little healthy competition. No, not 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 one bit at all. And uh, and and well, again, while there are great competitors out there, the pace of the innovation that we've been driven, we don't think that people um, are going to keep up with that. And what would your pitch be to someone that was considering true as a career for themselves? We have a really simple pitch, which is we change the roles in search. So if you want to be on the most innovative platform with great human beings, with unprecedented growth, with tools and and innovation that other companies don't have. So that would accelerate your ability to, to bring those things to the clients that you have. And you wanna work at a place that there's a bunch of great humans that has a great culture. This is the place to be. We don't even sell beyond that, Jeff. Like that alone in search is enough. Um, and uh, it's a self-select process. We didn't have uh, a business plan that said, go out and hire 500 people. We hired to meet the demands of what our clients asked us for. So. You know, we tripled our the growth in our private equity sector. We committed to being really international. I was in London last week. We have 100 people just in a London office. And, you know, right behind that is APAC. Uh, we decided that we wanted to start investing alongside of our clients. We set up our own fund. We did our 65th deal last year, probably in the last two years, co-investing with the top investors. So for me, it's the, the, the work content and the culture just keeps me coming back every day. 
Todd, thank you so much for sharing your story. I really appreciate your passion, uh, your authenticity, and your vulnerability. Thank you, my friend. It was super fun. Thanks for joining everyone. To share your thoughts about this episode or questions for any of our guests, you may join our community of imperfect leaders striving for greatness at www.imperfectleaders.com. You'll then have access to all past episodes, special content, and invitation-only roundtables with the country's most successful leaders, business school professors, and executive coaches. See you next week, everyone. Thank you.